Genesis 26 and 1. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. It is my prayer. You may be seated. Remember Galatians 4.28. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. And so we see a comparison that's made between Isaac and us as the people of God. And though Isaac has had a life that was overshadowed for the most part by his father Abraham and his son Jacob, uh, yet there are some chapters like Genesis 26 that are almost wholly uh, devoted to his life. And we have before us uh, some scenes, some things that happen. We kind of began looking at this last week. Some of the blessings that came upon Isaac, we saw the blessings on his marriage as his wife was able to conceive children as he prayed for her and she was pregnant. But then she was crying out to God, God, if this is your blessing, then why does it hurt? And sometimes that's our question to God as well. You know, I understand God says I'm blessing you, but sometimes his blessings don't feel like blessings. Sometimes... His blessings become the source of trouble and trials to us, but they're still blessings. And uh, so we saw that blessing on his marriage, and we saw the blessing on his personal life. And tonight we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 26 and, and take a look at this famine. That's how the chapter is, uh, begins with us in Genesis 26. There was a famine in the land, uh, the famine in the promised land. A famine is almost always associated with drought. Uh, they say that f- over 40% of the United States right now is in a state of severe drought. Severe drought. Over 40%. Uh, certainly here in Arkansas, we are experiencing drought. We thought maybe we had a drought buster back in August. Uh, we didn't. <laughs> uh, now it's back with a vengeance. Um, But still in our day, you know, famine and drought maybe doesn't always carry the connotations that it did in Bible times. In the pre-Walmart days or the pre-Kroger days, a famine meant that people would suffer and starve to death, that animals would die, and uh, people would lose everything caused by drought. Famine. Famine was a word of terror. As believers, though, today in Christ, we need to remember that we're not isolated or insulated from famines. Famines can occur. Even as we are experiencing the blessings and the promises and the provisions of God, it might not be a famine of food. could be, uh, but it could be a famine in our family. It could be a famine in our finances. It could be a famine in our career. It can even be a famine in our church or in our marriage. There's all kinds of famines, famines that can strike us, uh, a drought that can descend upon us. 
They will always subject us to the pressure of dwindling resources, of expanding demands as times get tougher, resources decline, and then the lack of strength to deal with it, famine. It's a glorious truth, though, that God came to Isaac in the midst of that famine and renewed his promises to him and gave him some instructions. Aren't you glad that we serve the God that can come to us in a time of famine, in a time of difficulty, in a time of trial? Our God can come to us, and he did. Verse 2, then the Lord, then, there was a famine in the land, then, <laughs> then, the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I'll be with you and bless you. For you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And if that sounds familiar to you, it should. Because it is almost verbatim the same promise, the same covenant that God had made to Abraham. Right down to the seed. Uh, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. You see, the famine had not changed the fact of God's promise. It never does. Famines do not have the last word in the life of God's people. <laughs> they don't. God's promises have the last word. And the fact that we might be going through a, a time of trouble, even a time of famine, that God's promises are just as real and just as trustworthy when we are suffering as they are when we are rejoicing. And though this story then begins with the story of a famine, it is going to quickly move to show how God's blessings flowed on Isaac and through Isaac, even in the midst of the famine. Verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. <laughs> How's that for a drought crop? How's that for a famine crop? God, Isaac sowed in that land and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Now, I'm, I'm not a farmer. I really don't know how many bushels it takes per acre uh, to, to plant and produce a crop. Uh, but I, I do have a little bit of math in me and I can cipher some. I know a hundredfold crop means that if it, he planted a bushel per acre, he reaped a hundred bushels per acre. If he planted ten bushels an acre, he'd, he'd, he'd reap a thousand bushels per acre. I don't know what the ratio was, but a hundredfold crop is a big crop any time. That's a hundred times how much you planted. A hundred times. hundredfold. Yeah. No wonder then that the Bible says that God blessed him. And the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Now, it was a, a tough time right then. In fact, uh, uh, the, the 
Philistines, we'll see later in the message tonight, became very envious of the blessings. Uh, but it, it, you can't keep blessings like that under wraps. If everybody else's crop was just drying up, drying up. You know, like we talk about living in high cotton. And still coming up from South Arkansas and the cotton lands uh, that used to be cotton that's all grown up in pine. But there was still some cotton where I grew up. I still like driving through those fields of cotton that are about that tall, high cotton. You know, but I've heard tell of those times when they had cotton crops that were down like this. And there was just nothing. Nothing. The drought. So if you've got a, a field full of high cotton and everybody else, if you've got a, a field that's full of beans that's this high, a field full of wheat, field full of corn, and here's a green and lush and productive, and everybody else is dried up, yeah? Not only that makes you prosperous, but that may very well make your neighbors a little bit envious, jealous, even angry. Especially when this wasn't just something that was happening. I mean, this was the difference between a family surviving and thriving and, and maybe a family dying. Isaac was blessed and became very, very prosperous. So let's see tonight how this all played out for us. And of course, the first thing, and we touched on this last week, is that is that Isaac obeyed God. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I should tell you. Dwell in this land, and I'll be with you and bless you. Verse 6 then says, So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Now, though Gerar was technically a part of the land of the Philistines, uh, still it was a part of the land of Canaan. He hadn't gone down to Egypt. He was in Canaan's land. The Philistines were also Canaanites and part of the land that God had given to them. So it uh, doesn't seem to be any indication that God was unhappy with the fact that Isaac went to Gerar. He didn't go to Egypt. God said, don't go to Egypt. Isaac didn't go. He demonstrated remarkable wisdom tonight. He did what God said. He did what God said. I've tried real hard this week as I thought about this message and prayed over it. I, I tried to think of a time that I'd ever done what God said and regretted it. I couldn't think of a time. I could think of a whole bunch of times when I didn't do what God said and regretted it. But to do what God said, uh, simply obeying God sometimes gets lost in the shuffle of all the things we feel like doing or all the things we want to do or all the things we feel like uh, that make sense to us to do. Disobedience so often leads us down a path of painful self-destruction. And, and then it's possible after a long time just to settle down in that self-destructing state. You've seen people do that. They start disobeying God. It starts them down a path. Instead of repenting and turning around, they just keep going down the path. The further they go, the deeper in it they go, the more downward their life goes. It just draws them in and keeps them going. And they're going further and further and down and down and down. They get used, I think, to all the struggle. 
all the pain. I heard a story about a guy who visited a fortune teller. I'm not recommending that. It's just a story. Uh, when he asked her about his future, she said, for the next seven years, you'll be poor and miserable. The guy brightened up and he said, so that means after seven years, I'll be rich and happy? No, she said, after seven years, you'll still be poor, but you'll get used to it by then. That's kind of the worldly way of dealing with things, you know, just get used to it. I'm here to tell you tonight, believers never just have to get used to it. We can always obey God. If we've gone down the wrong road, we can repent. When we do, God will forgive us and restore us. We'll see an example of that right here in our text tonight. It doesn't matter when our circumstances get difficult. You know, we can always choose to obey God. One of the great things to obey God about is when he told us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The very fact that Paul repeated those instructions to the church at Philippi means that he knew we'd struggle with that. Rejoice in the Lord. Uh, it doesn't matter how a famine might descend upon our life. It doesn't matter how difficult our life may become. We have something as believers in Christ that we can always rejoice about. Rejoice in the Lord. God's promises are still true. Remember the famine doesn't get the last word. God's promises are true. Isaac's obedience was to the instructions God gave him. He applied those instructions, was obedient to it. You and I have a wonderful book called the Bible. It's full of good godly instructions, commandments, and warnings. When you're struggling maybe with a decision, you might think, well, I need to read my Bible. You may read a long time before you find something that helps you. Might be inclined to give up. Well, I, where do I start? Where do I look? Well, obviously, there, there's, there's things that you have. You, you've got good, faithful Sunday school teachers, good, faithful deacons, good, faithful people in your life that you can ask, what does the Bible say about this? Uh, there's all kinds of things and study materials that are available to us. I, I, I love as a pastor to be able to take God's word so that uh, anytime somebody talks to me about a situation, I'm always in my mind thinking of a Bible verse that can answer that. Something the Bible has to say that, is addre that addresses it. When we hear what the Bible says, we may very well decide it's too difficult to do. We may well decide that it's uh, too idealistic. It's just we may very well do that. But perhaps tonight we can learn instead from this great Old Testament example. God said, don't go down to Egypt. Why do you think that Egypt was such a pull to these people in a time of drought? Uh, Egypt had the Nile River. That big flowing delta coming down through there. It was almost immune from the droughts. There could almost always be food. Not always, but almost always. There would be food in Egypt when there wasn't food anywhere else. God said, don't do it. You stay here and I'll bless you and take care of you. Second thing we see, <laughs> because the Bible's real. It's not just all idealism. The Bible's real. The next thing then we see is that old habits and behaviors are always a threat. 
<laughs> doesn't matter how many times we obey God. doesn't matter how many times we live out God's blessings. doesn't matter how many experiences we have with God where he tells us and reminds us of his glorious promises, old habits, and old behaviors are always a threat. So Isaac has gone down to Abimelech, uh, to the king of the Philistines, and he's there in Gerar. Maybe that sounds a little familiar to you. It should. He's in old territory. His father Abraham had gone to the same place. Probably not to the same guy because if it was the same Abimelech, then he'd have to be really, really old by the time that Isaac gets there. Uh, it's probably uh, kind of like Pharaoh. You know, it just passed along, the name passed along. And, and so we've got Abimelech the second or Abimelech the third. But the men of the place then ask about Isaac's wife. And we know that's Rebecca. And he said, she is my sister. Wonder where he got that idea. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought lest the men of the place kill me for Rebecca because she's beautiful to behold. And it came to pass when he had been there a long time. They lived a lie a long time. When he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw. And there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. And then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, <laughs> she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister and Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. Abraham did the same thing with Sarah. Only it got worse because Sarah actually ended up in King Abimelech's harem. Abimelech sent and took Sarah. God, you might remember, came to Abimelech in a dream. And God had a simple thing to say to Philistine king Abimelech. You're a dead man. That's what God said. You're a dead man. Because you'd taken Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, that didn't sound like a good idea to Abimelech. Even though God had appeared to him in a dream, somehow Abimelech was able to converse back with the Lord and and said, no, wait a minute, I, you know, I'm not the one at, at fault here. Abraham told me that this was his sister. She's beautiful. I wanted her. I'm the king. It's not my fault. So uh, God didn't kill him. And he got Sarah back where she belonged in a hurry. Uh, do you think this Abimelech the second or Abimelech the third might have heard that story? I figure he probably had. And as soon as he saw then that Isaac was showing affection to his wife Rebecca in a way that would not be appropriate, of course, would not have happened between a brother and a sister, he knew obviously that this was his wife. Um, the old King James had this sporting, and that was a very good translation of the word that's used here. It literally means in Hebrew, uh, to make to laugh, to make to laugh. They were enjoying one another, showing uh, a very, some kind of very public display of affection uh, that they probably should have kept in private. Um, it's a good time to point out something about human sexuality. On the one hand, we have a culture that is so obsessed with 
anything goes kind of human sexuality. Everything is permissible. Everything is acceptable. Let's remind ourselves, though, that God has a clearly defined plan for human sexuality. One man, one woman in a committed relationship to each other called marriage. So on the one hand, we've got a, an, extre- an, an extreme culture uh, of sexual obsession that is sanctioning everything and anything. On the other side, it's possible to go the other way and make human sexuality something that's bad or dirty. It isn't. Isaac and Rebecca were obviously enjoying one another in some kind of affection that brought gladness to them. And the only thing that even remotely was wrong about it is that they were doing it in a place where they could be seen by others when it should have been private. The principle on display, though, in this passage is that even though Isaac had decided to obey God, he was still moving in self-reliance, still trying to protect himself, still trying to do exactly the same things that he had heard from and seen from his father. Not relying on God. He ended up then living a lie for a long time. Putting his whole family and a lot of other people at risk. It was a, it was a sad story. It was a bad deal. It's a bad deal. But then Isaac continues in faithfulness. I don't think that it is coincidental that it was after that Isaac brought the truth to light after the truth came out, after Isaac had confessed the truth of his wife, his, that she was indeed his wife, that he had lied because he was afraid. He, he confessed that truth. And after that confession, and he's got then uh, at the truth, and the Bible begins in verse 12 with that important word, then, then. Second time we'd found it, then. The Lord spoke to him. Then Isaac sowed in the land and reaped a hundredfold. You know, every time we plant a seed, we are committing an act of faith. That seed most likely is for food that we can eat, but instead of eating it ourselves, we go out and plant it in the earth, counting on God to produce a crop that will enable us then to eat. For Isaac to sow in that land in the midst of a drought, though, was an especially great act of faith, relying on the promises and the provisions of God. It's no wonder that God responded to such incredible faith for him to plant a crop in the middle of a drought. When he was a shepherd, by the way, and a herdsman and a cattleman, these were not farmers. That wasn't their kind of thing. They were nomads. They, they traveled around the land and grazed. Now, all of a sudden... He's planting a crop. And oh, what blessings, what blessings God gave to this act of faith. Great Bible scholar John Phillips was fond of saying, you supply the faith and God will take care of his own reputation. God, you see, calls on us to walk by faith and not by sight. Scripture then shows that Isaac had to learn how to deal with contention. His prosperity was attracting the antagonism of the other inhabitants of the land. We're not spending a lot of time here tonight, but uh, they all began to be jealous and began to persecute Isaac and his people. Isaac could have gone to war. He had many servants. 
But instead, he simply kept moving on and kept planting and kept enjoying the prosperity that God was bringing on him. And he did something else. One of the things that Isaac's known for, he began to dig wells. The Bible tells us that the Philistines had stopped up all the wells that Abraham had dug. And, you know, that doesn't make any sense at all. This is a dry land, desert land. Water's precious, precious thing, precious commodity. And Abraham had dug some very, very good wells. But after Abraham died, the Philistines just went out and stopped him up. Doesn't make any sense. Only one conclusion that I could come to. Uh, they wanted nothing to do with the blessings that come from the Lord God of Israel. Those blessings, you see, God had blessed Abraham. God had blessed him in the digging of those wells. and They'd rather stop them up than experience the blessings of God. Uh, there's a, a lot of that in our land even today. Of people who would rather hurt themselves and hurt their families than experience and enjoy the blessings of God. Just, just to spite themselves, just to spite Abraham. Just to, it didn't matter what they did or who they hurt. They'd stopped up the wells. Well, Isaac just went out there and went back to where they were. And in his true godly character, he just started digging wells again. People who don't know God are often their own worst enemies. And as Isaac then reopened those wells, all of a sudden in this time of famine, everybody wanted those wells. After he got them up and got them flowing, some of them were artesian wells. Think about how precious that was. The water just comes flowing up out of the ground. You see the blessings of God. But Isaac, showing true godly character, then instead of fighting with those people over the blessings of God, when they showed up and said, we want it, he, he just let them have it. It's an example of Romans 12, 18. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now remember, we've seen this before, but I want to mention it to you tonight at this passage because it kind of explains what's going on. God gave Abraham that whole land. It all belonged to him. But when Abraham died, how much land did he have a deed to? Burial plot. God gave it to him, but there was a whole lot of people out there who had legal claim to that property. They thought it was theirs. And as they sojourned then and dug a land, well, they said, that's ours. And rather than fighting about it, Isaac said, okay. It's another act of faith, folks. Do you see how Isaac knew that he could build? Hey, I remember Dad had, a, had another well right over here. We'll just go get that one. So he went and opened that one, and here they come again. Oh, this is ours. It's on our land. Give it to us. He said, okay, there's another one down over here. And uh, it just went on and on and on. In this passage, the Bible says they built or dug four wells. And the first one Isaac called Ezek, and that means contention, strife. Uh, the next well would be called Sitnah. It comes from a word that means hatred. And by the way, that is the root word in Hebrew for the word Satan. Satan. The ultimate source behind all contention, you see, is our ultimate adversary, the devil. The third well, he called Rehoboth. Because 
it was a wide place or path because he felt that God had made a place for them. There was room for them. And the last well he would dug, dig in the passage would be at Beersheba, the well of the oath. And it was there that the Philistines came to Abraham or came to uh, Isaac and promised to leave him alone if he would just leave them alone. Uh, long about this time, they saw those blessings. Genesis 26, 23. He went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. God promised and reminded him of his person. I am. You understand tonight God is not I was or I will be. I am. I am the God of Abraham. The person of God. Protection of God. Don't be afraid. The presence of God. I'm with you. What a covenant this is. And the promise of God. I will bless you and multiply your descendants. And we end up tonight with Isaac's testimony. Verse 26, Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahazath, one of his friends, and Pichol, the commander of the army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. What a statement. We have seen that the Lord is with you. They didn't see that because Isaac was a perfect example. He wasn't. He wasn't. They'd seen him lie about his wife, yeah, and put them all at risk. Yeah, they'd seen all that. But they'd also seen him admit when he had done wrong, confess his sin. Yes, I was afraid and I lied, I did. And then they saw after he had done that that God continued to bless him and bless him and bless him. And even as they fought against him, even as though they hated him, even though they were struggling with him and all of that, still they saw the blessings of God on Isaac. And so we said, we're going to come down and make an oath between you and us and make a covenant with you. Isaac then stands as a great example of what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4. Where it talks about how that we are vessels. Earthen vessels we're called. Clay pots. Clay pots. Earthen vessels. Those handmade vessels of clay. And the Bible talks in and goes on to talk about how we're pressed down and all that and you might remember if you were here at Bible school, Brother Chad gave us a beautiful illustration of all that, played all of that out for us, that great passage, how we're pressed down and, and how God forms us and shapes us. Clay pots. Clay pots. We're not the fancy stuff that sits up on the wall and never gets used. I don't want to be one of those. I'm perfectly happy just being a clay pot. That God can use. Tell you something about clay pots. We're all just a little bit out of round. <laughs> we are. 
just a little bit, a little bit lopsided, uh, maybe, maybe tilted a little, uh, just a little off center, might even be a crack or two if you look real close. But though we're vessels of earth, misshapen perhaps, slightly, yet God can still place in us his treasure. And that's what Paul said. He puts in us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He puts Jesus Christ in us for the world to see. And at the end of the day, we can all learn a great lesson tonight from Isaac. Through our dangers, toils, and snares, yes, and even through our failures. When we mess up, we fess up. (laughs) Just that simple. Face it squarely. And at the end of the day, what we want is our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, the people we go to school with. We want them all to be able to look at us and say, we see the blessings of God on your life testimony that's what the bible puts on display tonight with isaac that's what we all hope and long to be able to live out in our own lives